Hi, I'm Kristen Spragans. And I'm Katrina Noel. You're listening to The Trip Podcast. In each episode, we speak to thought leaders in the world of research to broaden the conversation of what it truly means to be inclusive. We are joined today by the newly minted doctor, Renee Bahati Klug, founder and chief trainer and consultant at Culturally Intelligent Training and Consulting. And Kristen, thank you for, um, for being open to this special guest of ours because she has been working with our team at No Research on our DE&I work. And I thought we've talked to a lot of people in the insights industry. Let's talk to an expert. So thank you for helping me welcome her today. Yeah, this is going to be a fun pivot to help, you know, elevate the learnings a little bit and kind of contextualize it for on a team. But welcome, Dr. Renee. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kristen and Katrina. It's good to be with you both. So could you do us a favor and, and introduce yourself to our audience about the work that you do at Culturally Intelligent and kind of your background in the space? Um, I'm not sure how many insights in organizations you work with, but kind of any experience in that area as well would be great. Yes. Absolutely. So as a cultural intelligence trainer, what I do on the regular is provide consultation and training to organizations for holistic change via the lens of cultural intelligence. And this is a model that my team and I developed through my doctoral research. And what we seek to do as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, is come in and ascertain what might be some issues with access, maybe with pay parity, with uh, people feeling like they are truly being included. And then we use a strategic blend of training and consulting and assessments to uh, deliver uh, strategies for actionable change. And we try to do it individually for organizational transformation. And you asked about how many companies we have been uh, going officially as a company for about a year and a half. And we have contracted with 20 companies. And how I started this, I was originally at Arizona State University as a senior trainer there. And so I got my feet wet working with faculty and staff departmentally, uh, doing similar things, not as holistic, more in the training lens there. But that led when or outside organizations kind of started to knock and say, hey, we'd like to see what you do. It couldn't do with us. So that's when I b built a team. And here we are. Very exciting work, very timely work. And I would say probably evergreen yes. <laughs> as well. Yes. Yes. Even though things seem to always be dynamic and changing, I think you're right. It is evergreen. So the act of bringing humanity to the workplace, I think, is always going to be important. When you're thinking about, you know, how inclusion works within these organizations, um, where do you typically start with companies? Like where, where is, where's like that first kind of point of navigation into, you know, is it developing a mission statement? Is it kind of crafting? You know, I'm just so curious about where, where you start. This is a really good question, Kristen. And in fact, we start differently with different companies depending on where they are. So we actually start with a conversation and we seek to ascertain where they might be. How far along are they in the process? Some companies already have a mission statement. Some people already have commitments to diversity and inclusion. Others don't. They're starting from scratch. So we um, are now kind of figuring out this really happy medium of 
<clears throat> figuring out what they need, when they need it, because sometimes it's not effective to start immediately with a mission statement if the company holistically hasn't figured out what their values actually are. Or if maybe they think that they know their values, but maybe those values are misaligned with their their actions. And that sometimes can be a hard wake-up call for some companies. We haven't seen that too often, but it happens. And then for many companies who maybe don't know where to start, we start with uh, a holistic kind of audit that is a quantitative and qualitative assessment, either of the whole company, depending on how many, or of the diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI committee, senior leadership, and maybe uh, key people throughout the organization. And key meaning people from all levels, all backgrounds, so we can get a holistic look at who they are, kind of in line with what you do. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. When you came in to work with our team, it was like being researched, the researchers being researched, um, which is always <laughs> kind of fun for us to get to be on the other side of things. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. I'm glad it was fun. So meaningful and, and fun. Yes, yes for yes. sure. Well, both, both are important, I think. Yeah. So. And anecdotally, Kristen, it was kind of interesting because we are working on our values, mission, and vision sort of relaunch, um, at the moment. And it was amazing to have the sessions with Renee as part of that. And I hadn't actually thought about the timing, um, and how important it is to have that kind of conversation, those two types of conversations quite close together. I just thought it was, you know, oh, chance overlap. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting. And I'm just so curious also, like, obviously, there's a point in growth where those dynamics and the, those shifts happen, you know, at what point, you know, maybe somebody already kind of had a great platform, but they, they kind of need almost like a refresh, like how, as a company or an organization, how do you know when you need to, to kind of revisit that? I actually think that the most effective companies are ones that revisit it regularly. And here's why. As culture shifts, and when I say culture, I am including all aspects of culture, uh, ethnicity, generation, so when we were born, all of the different socio-political things that are happening, uh, of course, our gender identities, our sexual orientations, some of those things we aren't necessarily going to express fully at work for various reasons, but all of those make up culture. And so as our culture, like our national or personal or workplace cultures are merging into kind of different, maybe new people are coming. I think every company would be better off by saying, okay, how do we, do we know who we are? This is, so cultural intelligence is the backup is saying, how are we most responsively meeting the needs of and communicating with people who are different than we are, which is probably most of the people we meet. So if we are leaders in an organization, and let's say we are experiencing growth, having a cultural intelligence framework to level set our entire team will help us be aware of those shifting dynamics that very often can be culturally bound. Again, cultural culture specific to all of those different things that we mentioned. So that I think is why it's so important and why it is to Katrina's earlier point, evergreen. 
I think it would be really helpful for our listeners that spend a lot of time worrying about um, these types of topics in conjunction with the research that they do um, to hear about how much of a value it is to do the work internally within their organizations. And um, you mentioned action-oriented. Like, are there any learning experiences or examples that you've had from a team really benefiting by doing the work, not just on the work, but in the, in the organization? Yes, absolutely. So the, there are three capabilities rooted in cultural intelligence. And the first is openness. How open are we to learning, not just about other people, but also ourselves? The second is this awareness. What do we need to know about others and ourselves? And the third is the responsiveness piece. Based on what we know, how are we going to behave? And so we really focus on building awareness to aid in that responsiveness. So people, I think, usually by the time they get to us, they kind of have bought into the why. Why Why do we need this? It's the how that most people struggle with. So in answering your question, Katrina, where I've really seen uh, cultural intelligence uh, demonstrated well is when people start finding out areas where they can be more strategic in, let's say, there's a, let's say there's C-suite meetings happening and they are primarily made up of people, similar gender, similar race, similar socioeconomic class, maybe even similar age and background. That is one perspective that they are receiving that could be to the exclusion of so many others represented within their organization. So sometimes they might not even be aware of what's, what's been happening, what's been status quo. So then when they recognize, oh, all right, we might be missing the mark on reaching out to certain clientele demographics, or maybe they're experiencing the great migration within their own workplace where people, they see people leaving. And it could be because whether it's their clients who aren't engaging or their employees who aren't engaging, it could be because there's a, there's a sense of disconnect, which factors into them not feeling included, which means they don't feel like they have a voice. They don't feel like they have access to different opportunities or uh, growth. And so they dis disconnect, they disengage, they go elsewhere. So when C-suite in this example recognize, okay, maybe we need to invite more women. Maybe we need to invite people across different diverse uh, cultural identities. Then we actually have a holistic uh, kind of uh, representation here. And then the next, it's not just getting people to the table. It's making sure that everybody at the table has a voice and that what they're saying is being included into the infrastructure of the company. This is a long process. This doesn't happen overnight. Um, and it can't be a one-off. Oh yeah, yeah, we're gonna have one meeting where we've got a bunch of diverse voices and then the next, then we're just gonna go back to how it's always been because it's easier that way or, oh, because whatever, we don't have a strategy in place. And this goes back to what Kristen was saying with the mission, the vision, the values. This is strategic. And if you don't have that strategy in place, and we help a lot of companies with that, um, it's hard to have that action. I love the, the tangibleness of the example that you provided for us. Like, you know, that who's at the table and are their voices being heard? And when you don't have those diverse perspectives, 
are you truly living up to the values that you set forth? Um, and it's interesting. I, as a podcaster, I listen to a lot of podcasts as well. And I was listening to left, right and center this morning and they were talking about the confirmation bias. I think, um, that status quo and being willing to speak up and say, Hey, this is, you, are we looking around and seeing what's going on here? Like in, and having that uncomfortable conversation with other thought leaders, I think is so important. I just would love to hear maybe more about how you've seen like confirmation bias hinder, but also empower teams. Thank you for bringing it up, Kristen. It's so important because bias is innate. It's a fact. We all have biases. Sometimes they can be positive. Sometimes they can be negative. I think that's really important for us to remember. And a bias is when you are behaving in a way that's exclusive to somebody. So uh, when you say confirmation bias, it's saying, well, you know, we are going to take information that already affirms what we believe. And we're going to say, okay, this is okay that we've got a green light, whatever this thing is, even if it blows up, even if it's actually not the right answer. And, uh, but it happens. And another one I see often is affinity bias, which is aligning ourselves with people who are like us. And why do we do that? Because it feels safe. Because we feel an, an, an inherent sense of belonging when we don't have to explain who we are to other people. But then what often happens then is we move into confirmation bias. So we see this all the time. It's okay, but it's not as effective if we stay there. Once we recognize it, and I'll use my own uh, CITC or Culturally Intelligent Training and Consulting, I'll use that acronym CITC as an example. Uh, my uh, right-hand person, she is has a lot of similar social identities than I do, but we also have very similar personalities, and like even our same Enneagram number. And so we work together brilliantly and beautifully, and we make a great team. But it's not okay because we have similar areas in which we cannot see. So we had to loop in two other people who are very much not like us and they vet all of our materials before they go out and they create a headache for us. <laughs> but we invited that because we're like, look, we only can see what we can see. We only know what we know. You have been brought in to allow us to see what we can't see, to let us know what we're missing and to create more work to make what we're doing better. So it's more expensive for us. It's more time consuming. Um, and it is a little bit more draining, to be honest. But I believe that our work is made better because of it. Oh, I have such a follow-up question for that because there is debate in our industry as well in terms of making sure multiple and diverse voices are heard in the design of projects, the execution of projects, the analysis for that very reason. But on um, the qualitative or user experience side of things, there is this sort of question, I don't think it's a debate even, that the researcher, the kind of participant-facing person um, best practices is that that person is aligned with the participant for comfort level. So if there are identifications that make, you know, the other person on the other side of the virtual or physical table more comfortable by being more similar, um, we tend to default to that from a comfort level perspective. But that just made me wonder, um, you know, thoughts on eliciting feedback or, or listening from a point of difference or a point of similarity? 
You know, I love this question, uh, Katrina, and I think that if there's a delicate answer because there's one thing, there's one situation in which leaders are making decisions and creating outcomes and even creating products for a general population, whether that population, again, is their employees or their clientele. But then I think if I'm understanding your question, this is usually a one-on-one situation in which usually they're strangers, correct? The interviewer and the interviewee. And the, the interviewee is asked, is being asked to be vulnerable and open up with the interviewer who they are, where they're coming from, highly likely to be part or speaking from at least one of their likely multiple social identities. So because of the nature of that kind of strangerness, I think it can be really important to set up a, I don't know that safe space is a, is a word commonly used, but a brave space, a state, space where I'm invited to be brave, but I've also been given an atmosphere in which I feel like I belong and in which there are, there is a representation here of somebody who might get me. And because ultimately I'm assuming here, and you can tell me if this assumption is wrong, that that research ultimately is going to be disseminated to people who are not like the interviewee necessarily. So you want to get as much of an honest feedback from somebody who isn't walled um, because you're already nervous. I think any interviewee is probably going to be a little bit nervous and that's just part of being human. So what can you set up to make it the most effective conversation, the conversation that's going to yield the best data for your ultimate outcomes? I hope I answered your question there, but I, I think it's a good um, choice. Again, it's not that's not specifically my, my expertise, but um, in terms of how human dynamics operate, I think it's a good practice. No, that very helpful. I've now written down this phrase to use frequently: a space they've been in which they've been invited to be brave. Yeah, yeah. I love that. We talk about open and honest a lot, but brave is part. Yeah, it's like sharing your story can be brave, no matter who the the other speaker is, right? No matter who your dialogue partner is for that. Yeah, and there is a book um, by. Oh gosh, I'm going to totally, uh, her last name is McNamara and it's, um, I'll be gone in the dark. I believe I've got the right title, but it was about the golden state killer. And this writer was trying to find, uh, decades ago, this, this, all of these killing sprees had happened. And ultimately she's telling the story of, of how women who had been violated, both their home space and their physical space had been violated. Then this was back in the seventies and eighties. And the person who was brought in was female, uh, in order to speak to rape victims about what had occurred. And that I think had been a new practice back then. If I'm not, if I recall, because women who have just experienced this trauma, by a man may not be as willing to talk about said trauma with another man, especially that quickly when the evidence has to be collected, when all of these things need to happen within a given time frame, And that really kind of, um, stuck out to me. I, I read that book about a year ago uh, and I did find the killer by the way, but like a year or two ago during COVID. Um, but this whole idea that this was a new practice that had been, that, that had been begun, that had been begun, that had begun 
several decades ago that I think may have proved the point um, that women are likely to more to open up more in that kind of situation when another woman is present. It kind of reminds me of some work that we did recently where you just when you're doing, talking to a vulnerable or stigmatized or underrepresented group, just taking a little bit more calculated approach on on the talent or the person that they're they're sitting with and holding space together. I think it's the I think did a nice job kind of kind of platforming that too. But yeah, wow, so so insightful here on a Friday. <laughs> But I, I like the pair. I'm almost seeing like the pairing of that then. So the pairing of that seems that the organization that is doing this project is coming from a, an integrated, diverse team effort. The person having that conversation is a different story, is a different playing a different role, I suppose, in, in that situation. But if it's coming from um, the type of executive team that you were referring to, Renee, then there are other brains voices, attitudes, backgrounds in the mix of the project as a whole. It's not happening in a vacuum with two very like people. I think that's important for all of us to, to remember that there's pieces of projects. And like, you know, if, if there is a, a diversity and inclusive lens overall, parts of it can be done in different yes. ways. In fact, I think that's the culturally intelligent approach is saying that we're not going to do everything the exact same way, that we are going to have to pivot if we recognize that we did this thing and it didn't turn out as ideally as we thought. We didn't, it didn't yield the data that we thought it was going to be. Not to say that we need data to say what we want it to say, but I'm saying that if, if we realize that we didn't get what we needed to get or we had hoped to get, then we pivot. And we say, okay, do we need to bring in different types of people? Do we need to consult other kinds of stakeholders to make sure that there is? And again, I always say, are we bringing humanity back to every single project that we're doing? And we can, when we make business personal, I believe then we really can. I, that allows us to have that awareness of saying, Am I, am I thinking about the people, not just the outcomes, the people involved? And when you think about the people first, often you can get to those outcomes. It might take a little bit longer, but I, I truly believe that the outcomes, uh, there's less mess involved and there's less needing to go back and refigure or reconfigure. So the time you take to prepare well is worth it versus the damage control that could happen if you just one size fits all, or you go into something haphazardly, or you forget to think about the humanity of the people you're interacting with. You almost, that answer to the last question kind of segued beautifully into something that we always ask our guest is, you know, actionable, I, I hate to say tips and tricks, but people do like them. Are there things that you leave organizations that you work with, with, that perhaps could be sort of bite-sized inspiration for our audience. Sure. And this, this of course, changes with any organization. But here's what I think holistically I like to share. Number one, don't be afraid 
of the process. And what I mean is this is especially right now with cancel culture, meaning if you say anything wrong, you're going to get fired, you're going to get blasted on social media. I feel like this is a toxic practice because it, what it does is I believe it shuts down the entire conversation and then people don't want to engage the work of DEI. So what I say is engage the process slowly, embrace accountability and recognize that if we start with measures of accountability within organizations, top down, bottom up, then that creates a framework for trust or at least greater trust. And sometimes you've got to build that from the ground up, depending on, on what's been happening over the last several decades or however long your company's been alive. Then the next thing is committing to long term strategies and action that I don't, I think the one-off, two-off, three-off workshops can be, it's fine if you go to different companies and, and do those types of things, but ultimately the, the goal has to be long-term. Like what do we, where do we want to see in 20 years, 10 years, five years, two years, five years is basically tomorrow for most companies. So it's okay to set those directives. And then Understanding that inclusivity does not happen by accident and cultures are not cultures don't just happen organically. They are created and they ought to be created with intentionality. And if you're not creating them with in intentionality, they're being created by whatever defaults you have. And so it would be best to be intentional about the kind of culture you want to create, which then, yeah, of course, then you have consultants come in to try to help you figure all that out. That, that's almost like a, a human instinct. Like we want to think inclusivity is natural, right? And and the default and aren't we all, you know, perfect people already. <laughs> so I think that's actually, that's actually kind of might be hard news sometimes, I would imagine that this does take work and it takes time and it takes diligence and, and tracking and metrics and all of those things. It does. It takes vulnerability. I, I'll share a really personal story. My One of my daughters is in junior high, which I don't know how many of you grew up in the United States and experienced junior high, but it's hard. And it's a, it can be an embedded culture of exclusivity. But one of my uh, children, and I'll, I'll brag on her, there is a, a person who often sits by themselves and they stay apart. They're brand new to the school. And, and my daughter every day goes up to that person and says, hey, you are welcome to come and sit with us. And the person hasn't chosen to do that yet for whatever reason. And, you know, I suggested to my daughter, I said, listen, if you are willing and able, and this is going to be a choice on your part, maybe you could go sit with that person. But that's an act of vulnerability. That's an act of taking her stuff and not just asking a question, but actually changing a behavior. And I'm not going to pressure that. I don't know that that's even, I don't even know that that's what that other person wants. It's a tricky dynamic there, but I love that it can start young and it is innate. It, it happens as early as junior high or before. And that's why I bring it up is the relevancy of, of how we've kind of had these behaviors oftentimes embedded in us as children. So by the time we get to adulthood, the defaults are like, well, I don't even know how to go out of this comfort zone. I don't even know how to go and invite that person. I don't, I don't want to make them uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable. What do I do? So that's the question I hear the most is what do I do? I don't know what to do. 
and the answer is it's different with everybody with whom you're interacting, which is why cultural intelligence is so important because it asks you to stop, to engage emotional intelligence, to, to learn before acting and, and to do it delicately. Cultivating that sense of belonging um, and never underestimating the importance and power of that, you know, as we kind of move through our work lives and personal lives, I think that's a, a really beautiful last sentiment to close us out. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us sometimes, whether we're a CEO or whether we've just started and we're an intern, a lot of us are still operating out of who we were in junior high. If, especially if we're in the United States. I don't know. Other cultures might have different experiences uh, with junior high. But a lot of times that's what we bring. And it's, you know, maybe we could stand to immature a little bit. I'm sensing a tagline, like get yourself out of junior high or something. <laughs> it is rough. It is a rough time. I know. I know. It's so hard. But it's so hard. We, we, so we all approach life so just trying changes. to survive the lunchroom tables, you know. It's true. It's true. Going into the arena. And then what are we, which one are we? In? It's true. Well, thank hardest you. Part thank you life. for sitting with us at our table today. I will <laughs> <laughs> thank you for inviting me and giving me voice. Well, I think with that, we'll, we'll close out. Great. Thank you both for having me. I appreciated this conversation. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, learn more about the show, or check out our past episodes, visit our website at anchor.fm forward slash trip pod. That's T-R-I-P-P-O-D. Don't forget to subscribe to Trip on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.